0: and pull up a deck chair, this is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, I hope you're having a happy holiday season, getting into a new year very soon. Well, this week we've got another strange case. It's got twists, it's got turns, and we'll be going to Toledo, Ohio. It's 1996, and Gertrude Thompson and her companion Edward Kowalski will be found bashed to death. References tonight are the Dayton Daily News, the News Herald, there's court records, and my favourite, Forensic Files. Now, it's not a very publicised case, this one, but it sure is a strange one. Not in the murders themselves, but in the way the perp was caught. Ed Kowalsik was a marine veteran of World War II and had been the owner-operator of Interstate Realty for 20 years. Now, his wife had died and he was living with 69-year-old Gertrude, or Trudy Thompson, in their Shenandoah Road, Toledo home. The couple had several properties that they rented out. Trudy, well, she was a good businesswoman. She was strict about the rent being paid and being paid on time. The places they rented out weren't flash. They rented to low-income people and students. Now, from what I've read, the couple were a little bit tight with money, and they had all their windows covered in foil, plastic and cardboard to try and save money on heating bills. Photos of the inside of their house showed it was full. Hoarders like full. Because whenever anyone did a runner or left stuff behind when they moved out of one of their rental properties, Trudy and Ed would keep everything. They didn't throw away anything. Then on December the 7th, 1996, the mailman noticed letters piling up at their door. The police were called and no one answered the door when they knocked. As I said before, all the windows were covered so they couldn't see in, and neighbours told them that they hadn't seen Ed or Trudy for several days. When police gained entry to the home via an unlocked back door, they saw boxes stacked up, and it was a bit of a mess. Like, In fact, the boxes were stacked up behind the back door, so they had to push their way in. It looked like they were moving house. There were so many boxes of stuff. It was just All this stuff they'd hoarded, probably their own stuff as well, and it's just like the cops said, they thought they were moving out. Then they saw the lifeless bodies of Ed and Trudy on the living room floor. Part of the mess in the house was stored items from all these old tenants, but some of it was from a violent attack. It was clear that the elderly couple had been bludgeoned to death and there appeared to be stab wounds as well. There was no sign of forced entry, so police theorised that whoever had committed the crime, they were known to the victims. There was an extensive blood splatter throughout the room on the furniture and walls. But in two locations, there were perfect circles of blood. Not the elongated type from a weapon being used to beat a victim, but something like someone had stood there and it had dripped off them. Police collected DNA evidence including a blood droplet on a piece of paper 10 feet away from the bodies that looked suspicious. Police also discovered drops of blood on a purple box and on the inside of a broken ceramic pot that due to the placement of the droplets appeared to be from someone other than the victims. There was also a bloodied footprint that didn't match any of Ed or Trudy's shoes. This blood was sampled and taken for what at the time was basic DNA testing. It was difficult to see if anything was missing in the house as, like I said, they got so much of other people's stuff, including their own, stacked up all over the house. But one thing that was missing was a gold elephant pendant on a necklace. Now, Trudy's father had given it to her when she was a kid in Austria. It was supposed to be for good luck, and she wore it all the time. Autopsies showed Ed and Trudy suffered numerous injuries, including bruises, abrasions, lacerations, stab wounds, and depressed skull fractures. They had defensive wounds on their hands, probably from a knife. The coroner concluded that both victims had died as a result of blunt force injuries to the head and had been dead at least three days before their bodies were discovered. They also had several superficial stab wounds, which police thought was from the perpetrator or perpetrators torturing them, trying to find out where their money was stashed. A brass lamp and another rectangular-based lamp looked like they were used to bash Ed and Trudy as the fractures on their skulls matched the patterns from the lamps. There were no fingerprints on any of the weapons used. All the knives in the house were tested and none came up for blood or fingerprints. A phone message machine, well, that was found to have several calls from tenants, mostly complaints, but there were multiple calls from one tenant, and his name was Ethan Walls. In a hoarder's house it's extremely difficult to search for anything, let alone crucial forensic evidence at a crime scene. Police found money stashed everywhere, in books and all sorts of nooks and crannies. And it reminds me of the corner store where I used to live in Whitehall Street, Newtown. The old guy had run the corner shop for eons and he had little boxes everywhere that he would get changed from if you gave him a large denomination note. And I suppose, if he gets rolled, not all of his money will be gone from the cash register, just only some of it. This was probably the same for Ed and Trudy. Don't have a safe, which is obvious, just stash cash everywhere. Anyway, back to Ethan Wells. Ethan was one of Ed and Trudy's tenants. Now, the first message he left on Ed and Trudy's message machine was on December the 2nd, and he informed Trudy that he would arrive at her house at the same time, on December 4th. In the second message, which was recorded on December the 3rd, he said he was at work and would call her about the time he got off. Now, Ethan was driven to drop off the rent by a John Johnson. Ethan had put the rent check for December, plus $5 that Trudy had lent him earlier in the month, in an envelope, but he saw the mailbox on the front door was quite full, but he left the envelope and went back to his place with John Johnson, and John stayed until about midnight. On December the 5th, Ethan then decided to go back and see if his rent money was still in the mailbox. It was, and there was still plenty of mail in there. So he took it back and he spent the money. He said that Trudy would always call him to say she got the rent, but she hadn't called. And he thought maybe she was out of town and he could get his money back and pay her on the following Monday the 9th. And this is the story he told police when they interviewed him. They took a DNA sample from Ethan and checked all of his footwear, which for a person like Ethan, who was living check to check each week, the shoes he had on were probably the only shoes he had. Ethan also had an alibi from a couple who he was with around the time of the murders. Now, police put a photo of Ed and Trudy in the newspaper, along with a close-up of Trudy's elephant pendant. Now, there was no response at all from the public, and investigations of local jewelers and pawn shops failed to find anyone who'd handled the pendant. Then police got a lead that would break open the case. Joanne Harvey had told detectives that she'd seen Ethan Walls around the time of the murders. She said that in early December, she was at Robert Tate's place, a drug dealer, when Ethan arrived. She said that his shirt had blood on the sleeve, he was sweaty and dirty and he was carrying a velvet cloth that had, at the least, a wristwatch wrapped in it. Ethan told Tate that he'd needed some dope and after they got high, he allegedly admitted that he killed the couple around the corner. Ethan denied being at a drug dealer's party, having blood on his shirt and he asked police who and why was someone trying to frame him for this murder. Police found that the bloodied footprints didn't match any of Ethan's shoes and they also got results from the DNA samples from that blood found at the scene and that wasn't a match for Ethan either. Plus, he had a corroborated alibi that he wasn't there at the time of the murders. So what did they do? Well, five months after the murders on April the 19th, 1997, They charged Ethan with two counts of murder. Yep, they did. In a death penalty state. Later, the Lucas County Grand Jury returned an indictment charging Ethan with one count of aggravated robbery and or aggravated burglary with specifications and one count of aggravated murder with specifications. As you would be, Ethan was a bit freaked out by this. He cooperated fully with police. The DNA didn't match, and neither did the footprint. As he was handcuffed, he said, Please don't stop looking for the killers, because while you're focusing on me, someone's getting away with it. The theory was that Ethan had argued over rent or repairs to his place. That's why he was there. He wasn't there going to rob them, and when he was complaining that things had just gone out of hand. Police believe that the blood and footprints were from Ethan's accomplice and that two people had actually murdered Ed and Trudy as they hadn't been shot by a gun. Rather, they'd been tortured slowly over time and that one person probably couldn't do that by themselves. But evidence found at the scene would tell maybe a little bit different story. You see, there was a shard of glass in Ed's shoe. It was from a broken light bulb from one of the broken lamps used in the attack. Ed's coat was also at the front door. Now it seemed like Ed had stepped on the broken glass when he arrived home and Trudy was already being attacked, if not dead already. So it could easily have been one attacker. Then just before his trial, the prosecution's main witness, Joanne Harvey, retracted her statement about seeing Ethan. And she said that she lied about the whole thing and she refused to testify against him. Wow, the prosecution were really pissed off at this stage. They thought she had refused to testify because somehow Ethan had threatened her from his jail cell. Now, what I think, I think she'd been under duress to name Ethan instead of the actual perpetrator. And all of a sudden, that threat had vanished. Now, Ethan had all charges dismissed and was set free. And then the case went cold, no leads, nothing. But then, and this is why I chose this case, there was another major breakthrough in July of 1998. Annette Cheverini, owner of Liberal Jewelers, a pawn shop, called police. Now, one day, her daughter was helping her clean up old magazines and newspapers that had built up over the years, Annette, like Ed and Trudy, seemed to never throw anything away. During a break, she reached into a stack of old newspapers that was going to be thrown out for something to read. In the paper that she picked out, just randomly picked it out of a pile, she saw an article about Ed and Trudy's murder. Now, this was the press release the police had given out with the close-up of Trudy's gold elephant pendant. Now, this sent a shiver down her spine, She recognised it. Annette called her son asking where the pendant was because she remembered buying it and hadn't sold it, but didn't know where it was. Now her son said it was in the safe, and it was. Because Annette kept everything, newspapers, old magazines, she was a hoarder like Ed and Trudy, she knew she still had the pawn ticket somewhere else as well. She found it and it was dated the 3rd of December 1996. Now that was the probable date that Ed and Trudy were murdered. It had been sold her by a gaudy Candy and she'd paid just $20 for it. Candy was tracked down and he ended up saying to police that he was at the St. Paul's Community Centre on December the 3rd, 1996, where he met a James Jordan, a friend he'd known since the 70s. Candy said Jordan asked him whether he had any ID because he didn't and wanted to pawn a brooch with two elephants on it. Jordan told Candy he would split the proceeds if he would pawn the pendant for him. Upon pawning the double elephant pendant for 20 bucks, Candy signed a paper, showed his ID, which was copied and made part of the pawn shop records. Candy stated that after he left the pawn shop, He and Jordan went to his home and got high on crack cocaine, as you do. Candy saw Jordan the following day at St Paul's but didn't see him after that. Candy gave a DNA sample and it didn't match the blood found at the crime scene. Investigations revealed that Jordan was working as a handyman for Ed and Trudy at the time of their murders. Jordan had been arrested weeks after they were murdered for another robbery and was currently serving 45 years in Texas. Now, I couldn't find out exactly what he was serving 45 years for, but he wasn't a nice guy. Now, when they asked Jordan what was going on, he denied he did it, but guess what? His DNA matched. On October second, 1998, the grand jury indicted Jordan on multiple murder charges. Now, at trial, Jordan testified under oath on his own behalf. He claimed that he'd worked for Trudy for four years and that his DNA is probably in all of Gertrude Thompson's property because he'd been there. Moving items, installing pipes and painting, he worked for them. Jordan asserted that he never did anything to the victims and claimed he was the perfect scapegoat because he was already in prison. He further claimed that Trudy was a friend and on cross-examination asserted that Candy had lied about the specifics of pawning the elephant pendant. Jordan said he had the gold elephant pendant as payment for his services from Trudy. Now That didn't make much sense as it had been an extremely sentimental item to her as it had been given to her by her father when she was just a little girl in Austria. There was no way someone with all that cash stashed away in the house would use that as payment. He explained his blood was in the drawer, well, that droplet. That was because that's where Trudy left her Band-Aids and he had cut himself when doing work one day. The thing is, how did his blood get on the inside of a ceramic vase that had been broken during the attack? The jury didn't believe his story and he would be convicted on two counts of aggravated murder and ultimately sentenced to death. However, he wouldn't get to execution. Jordan died on August 28, 2004 from natural causes. So I guess some sort of justice from scum that had been given employment by this lovely couple, but he thought he'd rather torture and murder them instead. And he only got $20. Okay, it's a short but sweet episode to end of the year. But what about poor Ethan Walls getting stitched up by that Joanne Harvey? Well, she wasn't the only one apparently from court records. where i would read those records where Ethan tried to sue the county. But there was somebody else as well. Now, I reckon they were put up to it by James Jordan under duress And they retracted their statements once Jordan was in prison for his other crimes. See, they couldn't be hurt by him once he was put away for 45 years. But the cops really were pissed off that they couldn't pin it on Ethan. And I think still to today, they're pissed off that Ethan didn't go down for it as well. But then you've got to see Annette, the pawn shop owner. She's clearing out old newspapers and happens to randomly pick the newspaper that featured Ed and Trudy's murder with the photo of the elephant pendant. It was this that ultimately broke the case and put Jordan on death row. Now, this is, again, another case I found on Forensic Files, one of my many go-to shows for cases, and it's good because I only have a few minutes to bring you some of these cases. I know I've probably only brought you a little bit of it this week as well, but I usually try to put in extra details from these forensic file cases that I bring you. Now, there wasn't much background to Ed and Trudy that I could find, so I couldn't, I usually try to give you a bit more history about them. Now, Ethan didn't succeed in suing anyone for being arrested on such dodgy evidence, but at least he didn't go down for the crime he didn't commit. Okay, that's it for the end of the year, Islanders. I'd like to thank my Patreons, past and present, for keeping the lights on. There's Danielle Smith, Joe Fulton, Rachel Garnsey, James Ramsey upped his pledge... And a special thanks to all the other Patreons, past and present, thank you very much. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. A free beer is always nice after, after dumps to diving into these cases. Just like Susan Adams, Xander Grace patrick saunders susan adams and matthew bradford did this week merry christmas happy new year and boom but can i just ask you to take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even in the groups on facebook or whatever the island is one of the f- few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial free now because of the straight up nature how i bring the show to you this doesn't always go well with all the algorithms in there to push you up the charts so i do rely on your help in getting the word out there best of all it's free of charge to help the island out i'm also listed on audible i've just been mentioning this lately so please rate and review me there if you're on that service there are quite a few podcasts on audible now so you might find it a better alternative to listening in especially if you have an alexa thing i've got one as well Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you don't want to use any of their services. If you don't have a pod player, I also have links to merch, social media there as well. Also, you can email me if you want to get in touch. That's cambo at truecrimeisland.com. I wish everyone a happy holiday season from Kate and I at the island, and hopefully I can get back to Thailand in February. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as always, I always say don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night.